Hi, I'm Steve Mabb, Chair of the Australian Shareholders Association, and we're proud to be hosting the 2024 Investor Conference in Melbourne from the 19th to the 21st of May. And we're stoked that Phil, the host of this podcast, is going to be our special guest MC. If you haven't heard much about the ASA Conference, it's a flagship event that attracts around 300 investors and industry professionals, including the Chair of National Australia Bank this year, the Chair of AGL. We have Dr. Sam Hupert, the founder and CEO of Primedicus, and we've also got Richard White, the founder and CEO of WiseTech coming along, along with many others. For a limited time, new members can enjoy special pricing on registration for the upcoming conference, along with a complimentary 12-month digital membership with the ASA. That's two-day conference registration plus one-year ASA membership for $499, a saving of $150. Simply search for Australian Shareholders Conference Register, click on two-day conference non-member, enter the discount code MEM, as in member, 499, the number's 499, so that's MEM 499 to claim your special offer. Come along and meet me and Phil at the conference. We look forward to seeing you there. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shares for Beginners. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Shares for beginners. Do you realize you could walk into a mortgage broker and you could say, geez, I just saw this house over there that I want to buy $500,000 and I want a mortgage for it. And if you wanted a no income, no verification loan, no problem. Sit right down, sir. Sign here in the dotted line. Here's your money. You had to come up with the 10% or 20% down payment, but here's your, you know, $380,000 mortgage. Just go ahead and do it. No one ever verified. Did the guy have a job? He didn't have a job. Was he legal? Was he illegal? Did he file taxes? He didn't file tax. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Honestly, it was once again, complete stupidity, but it was what it was. Pleased again to welcome back Kenny Polcari. Last episode, we heard about 9-11 and the events of that day and how they've changed um, the world of finance. And now, after that, of course, we hit a bull market for a few years before another significant event. (laughs) So the markets, you know, after 9-11, the markets stabilized and then they started to concentrate. Then they started to trade normally again, right? They started to trade on fundamentals and macro data and all that stuff. But the events of 9-11 continued to linger on. And so that's when we started to see rule set changes and massive changes. That's when exchange started to go public, right? Because prior to this, the New York Stock Exchange was a private institution. It went public in 2005 when a reverse merger of Archipelago, which was one of the first automated platforms to trade U.S. listed stocks for. And when you say, say it went public, it means it became listed as a company that you could buy and sell. It became a listed company like like Coca-Cola and IBM. You could buy it, you could sell it. Prior to then, you couldn't buy it and sell it. And the seats, when you were on the phone, you said, I own a seat. Owning a seat was like owning stock in the corporation. So the seats was the ownership. 
And so when the exchanges around the world all started to go public, because look, the world was changing. It was becoming smaller. Technology was changing the world. Markets needed more capital. In order to do that, we had to change, as did global markets change. And that's when you saw the rash of exchanges around the world suddenly become publicly traded institutions. NASDAQ, New York, Euronext, right? They're all publicly traded institutions. And uh, on top of the modernization that we were doing in the markets was then this whole push to uh, to use technology to, to secure and stabilize the markets, which we did. And then the markets went public. And then these other venues started to pop up, you know, whether they're exchanges, like there are 10 other exchanges, or whether they are those alternative venues known as dark pools. And dark pools are really all owned by the big banks, Goldman and First Boston and JP Morgan and Deutsche Bank and UBS. And th- they were also really born out of the events of 9-11. And while I understand why they needed to be born then, and the function that they served then, I don't think there's a place for them in today's world, but they are huge money makers for the big banks. And the big banks are not letting them go. They are not letting them go. And so uh, they continue to exist today. But as long as everyone understands that they exist and the role that they play, then that's the role they play. I actually think that the dark pools end up sucking out liquidity and volume from the public marketplace, making actually the public marketplace less efficient than it otherwise would have been, right? What is a dark pool? Typically, this is the way it used to happen, then you'll understand what a dark pool is. If you're Goldman Sachs and you're the sales trader up on the trading desk at Goldman Sachs and IBM Pension Plan calls you up and said, we need to buy 50,000 Coke, right? And then uh, I'm sitting on the other side and I have a customer, I got Fidelity, and I say, hey, listen, I'm a buyer of Coke. And they oh, really, we'd sell you Coke right in line. Okay, great. So I'd stand up, I'd say to you, uh, hey, Phil, I got Coke for sale. You say, great, I got Coke to buy. So we would call down to the floor of the exchange. You would give your order, buy 50,000 Coke at $50 to the clerk. And then I would call down the exchange and say, geez, I need to sell 50,000 Coke at $50. Just cross them, meaning you're going to buy your stock from my seller. Goldman's going to represent the complete trade, but they have to do it at the point of sale out loud. They've got to expose both buyer and seller in case there's somebody in the crowd that can improve the price. So for instance, say Mary was standing in the crowd and she was a buyer of Coca-Cola, but she had a market order to buy stock. Well, I come in as the broker for Goldman. I say, listen, how's Coke? And the specials would say, you know, I'm 50 bid off it at a off it at an eighth. I'd say, okay, I can cross 50,000 or 50. And Mary goes, no, 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 no. I'll pay you an eighth for the, for the 50,000. So she's improving the price to my seller because the seller was just prepared to sell the stock at 50. Now I can find out that, geez, I could sell the stock at 50 and an eighth, mm. which is 12 and a half cents better for that customer. Multiply 12 and a half cents by 50,000 shares and it's real money, right? So I think to myself, okay, so I, I wouldn't be able to trade the stock at 50 because there was somebody who could pay higher. So I'd have to get my buyer to pay higher, or I'd have to, if my buyer was stuck at 50, my seller would sell it at an eight. The buyer wouldn't buy any because it didn't trade at that price, but the seller got the better price, right? That's how it worked. And that's what made it fair because it was competition at the point of sale. In a dark pool, if Goldman Sachs had both sides of the order, they no longer now have to send it to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange to be exposed in the public market. They can now take that trade as long as both their customers agree to a price and that price is within the framework of the quote. 
So if the quote is 50 bid offered at two cents, you could trade 50,000 shares at anywhere between 50 and two cents. You can't trade it at 49 and a half and you can't trade it at 51. You have to trade it within the framework of the market. As long as you trade it within the framework of the market, you could just take that trade and print it to the tape, which means, okay, I have a natural buyer and seller, right? My buyer is going to buy it from my seller. My seller is going to sell it to the buyer. That just prints the tape. Suddenly, 50,000 shares of Coke goes across the tape at $50 and, and one penny, and it's done. It's clean. It was within the framework of the market, and that's fine. Here's the problem. If I'm standing on the floor of the exchange as a buyer in Coke representing the capital group out in California, and I'm standing there and I'm trying to buy Coke, and I would have paid two cents, three cents, or four cents for that Coke had I seen it, but since I didn't see it, it went into the dark pool. The dark pool means I don't actually see it. All I see is the print hit the tape. I never get an opportunity to interact with that order. And so you can make the argument that two people got screwed in that in that case because the seller sold it at a price that he probably shouldn't sold it at. My buyer did not get the opportunity to be exposed to that volume and pay a higher price. The only person that got the deal there was the buyer who bought it at the price he shouldn't have bought it at because I was willing to pay more than he was willing to pay. When 9-11 happened and the market was in crisis, having a dark pool and having that efficiency did make some sense. I get it. But the markets no longer are in crisis, right? The market structure is no longer in crisis. And so therefore, I think by taking that volume out of the public marketplace, you actually weaken the broader public market. I believe that till the day I die. Just all comes down to a, a bid and an ask, doesn't it? That's that's it. That's all there is to it. Correct. But but Goldman will tell you this is the greatest thing they ever did because not only can they just print it to the tape, they don't have to pay a broker to trade it. They don't have to support overhead on the floor, right? They've eliminated all those costs. They just print. It's just automatic. They put it in the computer, bang, it prints, right? So one way or the other, but whatever that is, but I, I get it. I get it. It's part of evolution, whatever. I should say, Kenny, stop complaining. I'm not complaining. I'm just explaining to you what it is, right? Now, again, I don't think they should exist anymore, but I'm only one lone voice. No one's, <laughs> no one's really paying attention. <laughs> so anyway, the markets recover. We go through this. The New York Stock Exchange becomes a publicly traded institution. Modernization happens. Automation gets better and better every day. And people start to fall by the wayside. So today, there are less than 200 people that work on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange trading as many stocks as they traded before. Volume is now 12 billion shares a day. In 2001, if the volume was 2 billion shares a day, it was a lot. Now it's 12 billion. Uh, and the market's very efficient because it all happens electronically, right? At the end of the day, by 4.05, everybody's cleaned up. All the trades are delivered for settlement. They Most of them have cleared already. It's not a problem, right? That's how efficient it's become. So in that sense, it's become very efficient. And honestly, as an American, even as an American that had my own business on the floor of the exchange, and even though the technology destroyed my business, I fully support it because after what we lived through in 2001, after I saw what happened, it couldn't go on that way anymore, right? It had to change. And as an American, as an investor, all that stuff, I fully support the fact that now markets are much more stable, much more secure, right? Stable in the sense that the exchange itself, the, the, the systems themselves are stable. I don't mean stable in terms of volatility because volatility is actually only ramped up because of uh, subdecimalization. But that's a whole nother conversation. Anyway, so um, so then, the, you know, we go through uh, we go through the, the late 2000s and into the second decade. You know, the market's very strong. The housing market is very strong. Interest rates are low. Global markets are great. Global economy is wonderful. But then it starts to stutter again. 
right? In late 2006, started in early 2007, kind of rumblings of markets. Products like CDOs and CDSs and MBOs, and right? Those are collateralized debt obligations and, and uh, collateralized debt securities. They all had different acronyms, right? To explain them. They were all products that were born out of, out of this booming economy, when Bill Clinton was president, part of the mandate of his presidency was that, you know, everyone was going to be a homeowner. Everybody in the country was going to be able to own. They were going to be able to participate in the American dream and blah, 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 blah. And so, you know, the administration came to Wall Street and the financial community and said, you have to help us make this possible for everyone in America to be able to own a home, right? And so, you know, people in America, just like in your country, some people have great jobs and make a lot of money. Other people have other jobs that make less money. And so they have to find a way to buy a house. And so out of that request came things like, you know, no income verification loans and these adjustable rate loans and no money down loans. And, you know, as long as the economy's good, all those products work fine. Here we go. Once again, with, you know, as long as everyone's, as long as everything's humming along the way it was in 1986, before it started to collapse in 1987, the same thing happened in 2006. As long as the economy's good, everyone's good. Housing prices kept going up. Do you realize you could walk into a mortgage broker and you could say, geez, I just saw this house over there that I want to buy $500,000 and I want a mortgage for it. And if you wanted a no income, no verification loan, no problem. Sit right down, sir. Sign here in the dotted line. Here's your money. You had to come up with the 10% or 20% down payment, but here's your, you know, $380,000 mortgage. Just go ahead and do it. No one ever verified. Did the guy have a job? He didn't have a job. Was he legal? Was he illegal? Did he file taxes? He didn't file tax. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Honestly, it was, once again, complete stupidity, but it was what it was. When the economy started to stutter and people started to lose their jobs and suddenly you couldn't make your mortgage payment. And then, listen, everyone knows the story because then part of what happened were these adjustable rate teaser loans, right? These people who really probably couldn't afford to buy a house got these really low teaser rates. So for the first three years, you know, your interest rate was only one and a half percent on a $500,000 mortgage. And so your payment was next to nothing. Mm. But then in the third year... It was going to jump up by two full percentage points. And so the payment was going to suddenly, all of a sudden, it was going to change. It was going to go from $1,000 a month to $1,700 a month. And then three more years after that, it was going to go up another 2%. Now suddenly, it was going to jump to $2,500 a month. Okay. So what happened was the people that got the teaser rates were naturally the people who really couldn't afford them. Yeah, they could afford them if the rate was 1.5%, but they couldn't afford them if rates were normal 3%, right? And they were able also just to take the key back to the bank. And walk away, couldn't they? It wasn't like they were able to. They just did. Some of them just drove by the bank and tossed the keys out and said, here, go take it. I mean, I, you know, I'm out. <laughs> you hear stories of people that would they'd buy one house and then they'd go to the bank a year later and they'd refinance the house. They'd buy another house. And then a year later, they'd refinance the house. They'd buy another house. And so these people that had, they thought they were all zillionaires because they owned all this property. They were mortgaged up to the hilt. But as long as, you know, they were rented out and people were paying the rent, paid off the mortgage, it was fine. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
if you watch the movie The Big Short, which was yes. a great movie. Love the movie. Fantastic movie. Yeah. It was a great movie. It actually does a very good job of kind of detailing and explaining it so that people really understand it. Because it could be complex, but I think it was a great movie. The book is fantastic. Yeah, the book is fantastic too. You remember the um, about the, the girl who works in the, in the strip joint telling the story about how she owns five properties. And then the, the banker had to go and I don't know, there was that, there was that scene and she like couldn't believe that. What do you mean? You know what I mean? But that's what it was like. As the economy starts to unravel, we all know what happened then because the banks took all these subprime loans and, you know, they did. They packaged them into uh, saleable securities and then they sold them to people around the world. Not individuals, but they sold them to institutions around the world because, oh, these are the safest thing in the world. Guaranteed money and blah, 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 blah. Right? So all these institutions around the world all of a sudden had exposure to the U.S. housing market which was a house of cards at that point, right? And so then we all know what happened. It all collapsed. The end of the world came. Bear Stearns was the first one to go out. And then when Lehman Brothers went out, that really rocked the world. And that really shook the global financial markets. And quite honestly, if you weren't in the business, you may not have been that attuned to it. But you know, during that whole crisis, after Lehman Brothers collapsed, the strain on the global financial market was tremendous. And the truth is, the global financial markets, not just the U.S. markets, but the global markets came almost to the edge of Armageddon. It was that bad. And I'm not trying to create all this anxiety. I am telling you what happened. If every central bank around the world did not come to the rescue and, and you know slash rates to zero and pump money into the system, we would have gone over the edge. The whole world would have just gone over the edge, right? Because the system would have completely collapsed under its own weight. And so I get it. And while I don't condone what happened, I also understand what the world did, what the central banks around the world did, and what governments did to save the financial system, really in the whole world. It may have started in the US, but it now infected the whole world, right? And I remember, you know, when I was uh, at this point, I was now um, running the desk of another brokerage firm. And I'll, and I'll never forget it. You know, the days on when Bear Stearns collapsed and then the markets came under under pressure. And it was all that summer when the markets were very antsy, continued to come under pressure. And then the whole conversation about Lehman Brothers and then Merrill Lynch went out. Merrill Lynch got scooped up by Bank of America. And then all these other combinations that, you know, the Fed and and Henry pa- Hank Paulson, you know, helped to manage and all that stuff. And I get that. And so the dynamics of the U.S. financial service services industry, the complexion of it just changed overnight. And they let Lehman Brothers go out. But you know, what's really interesting is Lehman Brothers went out. Hank Paulson did not try, you know, in retrospect, he did not try to save Lehman Brothers. In retrospect, it was probably wrong. He probably should have because of the damage it did to the global system. Kenny, interestingly, at this point, if I I could just interrupt you, um, I've got a little connection with the crash of the Lehman Brothers in that I know a woman who was very high up in Lehman Brothers at the time. And even up until 2017, she was still getting requests from people like the DOJ asking to have a chat to find out what went wrong at the time. And she told me that one of the reasons why Lehman Brothers was allowed to crash was because nobody liked the guy that was running the place. Everyone hated him. That's exactly right. And and I was going to tell you why everyone hated him, because if you remember... If you remember back in 1997, I believe, there was this institution called Long-Term Capital Management. It was based out of Greenwich, Connecticut. And it was this, you know, this it was one of those new uh, high-powered hedge funds, and they were using all kinds of complex transactions. They were investing around the world and the Russian ruble and this, that, and the other thing, blah, blah, blah. And they dragged all the big investment firms in. And if you remember, 
they blew up when there was that Russian ruble crisis and the WorldCom uh, MCI merger blew up and all that. They had massive exposure and uh, they blew up and it was a $3 billion problem. Now, I hate to say it like that because today $3 billion is like me saying I got 20 bucks in my pocket because, you know, we're talking about trillions and zillions, right? Then it was a $3 billion problem. It was a massive, $3 billion was like, oh my God, it was a massive problem. And so the government went to all the investment banks and said, it is up to you to fix this problem. And so all the investment banks came together with the exception of Lehman Brothers. Dick Fold refused to support the industry and the system and the problem. And nobody forgot that. Nobody forgot that. And so when it came time for Dick Fold, when, when Lehman was collapsing and Dick Fold was was begging on his knees for somebody to please help him, the whole street turned their back on him. Now, I hear you. You want to turn your back on Dick Fold. But when you think about the damage that then ensued for all these other unsuspecting people, whether they were employees at Lehman or whether they were people like you that somehow had exposure to some financial instrument that, right? So I get it. But I, in my opinion, I think it was short-sighted. I think they should have somehow found a way to maybe save Lehman. They could have thrown Dick Fold out, but they should have saved Lehman or they should have at least tried. On these terms. Yeah, on <laughs> we, these We'll terms. save you, but, uh, you know, he has to go. There were some terms that, uh, I think it was Barclays or something, and Dick Fold refused the terms. Nope, not good enough. Well, really? Really? Yeah. Do you have any leverage in this situation? Yeah. Yeah, so they let him, they let him fall. Global Central Bank stepped in, tried to stabilize the markets. And everyone remembers, you know, the markets had a very tough time. I mean, look, certainly in the U.S. market, between when Bear Stearns failed in March of 08 and March of 09, the U.S. capital markets, you know, the, the Dow lost 60% of its value. The S&P lost 60% of its value in, you know, a year, year and a half, whatever it was, right? By the time, it, if you really start from the very heights, might have been like a year and a half. It wasn't like the COVID crash last year, which was, which was very sudden, was it? It, it was, it had happened over a longer, much longer ramp. It happened over a long, long time, right? I mean, it took a year and a half for it to be down. But every day the market was down, the market was down, and then it would rally, it was down, right? Psychologically, it was like water torture, right? Where they just, they drip on your forehead, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, you know, the market struggled there for a couple of years. People certainly lost their jobs. The economy went into a tailspin. The global economy went into a tailspin. It infected really the world as we know. And then in March of 2009, when the S&P traded all the way down to 666 on March 9th is when Ben Bernanke, who was Fed chair, came out and made that announcement about quantitative easing and what they were instituting. And that was the bottom for the U.S. markets. I really think that was the bottom for global markets because then all the other central banks jumped in. And Quantitative easing is when you're like now where they're printing money. They're well- Printing money is a very simplistic way of putting it, but they're pumping liquidity into the system and money into the system. Just printing cash, right? And so quantitative easing, and then it was quantitative easing two, and then it was QE3, and then it was QE infinity. You remember that? I mean, it was just never going to stop, right? And so that took us out of the doldrums of March of 2009 into, you know, there was finally, I would say, stability maybe in, maybe in 2012, around 2013, because from really 2008 to 2012 or 13, the markets were very unstable. Even though they had rallied back from 09 to 12, they were still you could still feel the anxiety, the instability. During that period was the European crisis as well, wasn't it? There was eruptions over there. Yeah, it was everything, right? It was all just coming at the same time. And so then now the markets certainly around the world have recovered, but central banks around the world continue to support markets. And, you know, listen, 
it took us a decade plus to get where we are. If anyone thinks we're getting out of this anytime soon, sit back and relax because it's going to take us just as long, if not longer, to try to normalize, right? Because anything other than a very, very slow process out is going to do nothing but disrupt and create panic and cause markets to go into a tailspin, which they certainly, I know in this country, they don't want to see. And I don't think anyone else wants to see it. We haven't actually talked about what it was like for you personally going through the global financial crisis and dealing in markets at the time. What were the conversations you were having with your friends in the industry? It got it was exhausting because every day was just another, it was a down day, it was another pressurized day. And listen, a lot of people lost a lot of money. Some people, you know, couldn't take it anymore. Other people's suicide rates in this country and this industry went up. It was tough. I mean, it was very, very difficult to come to work every day and try to, you know, focus on what was positive because every day there was not, it was just more negative news. I mean, there was nothing positive for a good four years or so. There was just nothing positive about what was happening in the financial markets. And look, the markets came under pressure, like I said, and people that had worked their whole lives, myself included, right? Because at this point I'm um, 50 years old. You know, uh, I'm on the back nine and I had I had worked hard. I had accumulated money. And then, you know, you see this money disappear and, and you know, you're investing, you're doing all the right things. You follow all the rules and you still lose. Right. And there were people that couldn't deal with it. Really, again, this is a lesson in psychology that money's not just money. Money's what's going on in your your own brain and your own mind and the way that you react to it and feel about it as well. It's, it's a fantastic lesson. It's difficult to tell somebody that's never lived through it that they have to they have to stay the course. Do not make an emotional decision, because usually when you make the emotional decision, you make it exactly the wrong time. Yep. You sell right at the low. And then, and then the place turns around, right? I mean, how many stories? You hear them all the time, right? That people make that mistake. I just can't take it anymore. That's exactly right. They can't take it anymore. I mean, it's one thing, you know, if the sell-off happens and it's two or three weeks, but this was, you know, a year and a half of the market just coming under pressure, under pressure, under pressure. And every day you lost another percent, lost another percent. Next thing you know, lost 60% of your money. You know what I mean? If you were somebody, I mean, just use round numbers. You know, if you had a million dollars in your account in 07, by the time it was over, you had $400,000 in your account and you're 55 or 60 years old. It was difficult. I mean, it was difficult for a lot of people around the world, not just here in the United States. I'm not saying that at all. It was difficult for people all around the world. And so it was a very stressful, stressful time. And it was stressful time, not only in the business, but it caused stress in, in your life. It affected then your own personal life, right? People getting divorced. They couldn't stand it anymore. They were losing their houses. They couldn't make the payments, whatever it was, right? And then marriages broke up and people ended up committing suicide, right? Yeah. The economy was crap at the time as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the Madoff thing happened in uh, December of 2008 which was a whole nother disaster because, you know, Bernie Madoff, you know, he was like a god in this country in terms of the SEC and the financial services industry and all that stuff. Meanwhile, he was a crook his whole life. He was a crook his whole life. And he bankrupted, you know, at Palm Beach. Real estate in Palm Beach took a beating. I should have been here then. Because <laughs> <laughs> now real estate in Palm Beach is through the roof. Yeah, real estate in Palm Beach took a beating then. And, you know, all these people that lost all that money with Bernie Madoff. I mean, it was a disaster. And so today, I mean, everyone knows today what's happened. Markets have roared back. We're at all-time highs. Uh, inflation in this country is beginning to spin out of control, but you'd never know it by looking at the markets. I mean, today we got we got a very strong CPI number, yet they took the markets up to new highs. The S&P just made a new high tonight. The Dow's near a new high. The Nasdaq's near a new high. I mean, much closer to the highs than, than not, considering what's happening, at least in this country. But, you know, inflation is rearing its ugly head. I do not, I am not in the camp where I think it's transitory at all. 
But again, I'm one lone voice and I don't sit on the Fed, so I don't get a vote. I know. It's it's an inter- interesting thing, the, the discussions that are going on at the moment between people, you know, and there's those that just say it's transitory. It's just going to blow over in a matter of months because um, the argument that I hear is, okay, you know, the example being lumber prices and um, that, you know, the Canadians will come on stream and start supplying it and that'll bring the price down. Natural competition will do that. But then um, I've been interviewing another economist here and he's got so many figures and such a nuanced view of what's going on and showing how many forces are actually acting upon what will end up creating very serious inflation. And of course, inflation means interest rates will go up and it's not great for equities. Right. No, it's not good for equities, but you know, you wouldn't know that by today. I mean, you know, inflation is going up. It was the strongest print we've seen in years at 5% on the, on the top line CPI. But they managed to explain it away by saying that used car prices are 1.5% of that number. So if you take 1.5% away from 5%, that leads you 3.5%. And that's below what the expectation was at 4.7%. So therefore, guess what? Not a problem. Okay, why don't you just take everything out and just make it zero and say, look at how wonderful it is. We should uh, date stamp this that we're recording on the 10th of June in the United States, but 11th of June here in um, sunny and cold Oz. But yeah, no, it's interesting just to have a look at that and the way at the moment, I mean, when this goes to where things might have changed, of course, but if it's still the same, it's just so strange. The We just seem to be in this fantasy world where every single piece of what can be bad news is just explained away. And is that just because of the there is nowhere else scenario? Money's got to get somewhere? Yeah, Tina, there is no alternative. Is that your theory? Yeah, that is my theory because, you know, rates are zero, right? Rates in this country are still zero, zero and a quarter of a percent. And so where where are people going to go, right? If they got to earn money, I mean, institutions, pension plans, all that stuff, they have to earn money. So where are they going to go, right? Unless rates rise and normalize, but that's not happening anytime soon. Kenny, thanks so much. It's been a great journey finding out so much about the history of uh, the New York Stock Exchange and about financial markets from someone who's been there right at the coalface the whole time. Yeah, I had a front row seat for 40 years. It's been fantastic talking to you. So thank you so much for sharing it and, you know, this time we've spent together. You're very welcome. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not shares for beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.